This episode of the All Things Go podcast is presented by Atlas Hair. Are you ugly? Yeah, we thought so. Lucky for you, we've got something for that. Atlas is an elite line of hairstyling products with cologne fragrances to help quaff that mop into something straight out of Hollywood and smell like you're the guy she's going home with tonight. Half of our products also contain a hair thickening ingredient to help those of us who are getting a little thin up top to make the most of what we got. Get started today at atlashair.com and use the promo code NASCAR for 20% off your entire order. We can't fix your face, but we can at least give you a fighting chance. Atlashair.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-H-A-I-R.com. Welcome in to the All Things Go podcast, episode 40. I'm your host, Derek Yoder, joined as always by my co-host, Brian Murphy, at Brian underscore Murphy underscore on Twitter. And Brian, the season is now in the rear view. How have you been since we last spoke? We had a good conversation with Chris Wormy last week. So how are you? Not bad. Still fighting a cold from uh, coming back from CODA. Um, so hopefully we can work through that through this episode, but... Um, other than that, pretty good. Um, really excited for Thanksgiving coming up. A lot of great parties and activities that um, I'm excited to uh, to start. So, um, but again, as always, really excited about our guest. Really excited about this episode that we have for everybody. Yeah, no, so am I. And and let's uh, welcome on our guest, uh, special guest of the program, Navi Singh, performance engineer at Porsche Penske. And Navi, thanks again for uh, joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing ex- excellent, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, as some of you may or may not know, I am Brian's neighbor and also his friend for the last couple of years. So I uh, appreciate the opportunity to come on this podcast and just talk about race cars. Yeah, no, it's good. It's going to be a lot of fun. Brian and I have talked uh, at length here and very excited to get you on. And uh, why don't you tell the people, you know, a little bit of uh, what you do, how you got into motorsports, just give a little the people a little bit of a background uh, of who you are. Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, as you would expect, I went to college and I got a engineering degree, uh, specifically in mechanical engineering. And I think with most people that work in the automotive or motorsport industry these days, my first real involvement with racing uh, in an engineering context came in uh, college through Formula SAE. Basically, it's a Mm -hmm. competition where a bunch of engineers get together via a club and you have basically three to six months to design your own sort of car to a given rule set. And then the engineers themselves assemble the car over a period of three to four months. You maybe test it for a month or two, and then you get to go racing with all other colleges across the, not only the U S but across the world. And so I think it's a, it's a really nice way of introducing people to what it is. uh, You know what I, by that, I mean what the world of motorsport is, especially as an engineer. And so I was involved with that for a couple of years. And then I think about two or three days after I graduated, I was in North Carolina working for Team Penske. So I moved from Oregon to North Carolina. And it was honestly a totally seamless transition from college to uh, working for a professional motorsport team just because of the high level of engineering that actually goes on through this Formula SAE competition. And for about four and a half years, I worked for Team Penske in the NASCAR Aerodynamics Group. And so one bunch of races, bunch of couple of, or a couple of championships. 
And then in, I believe it was 2020 or 2021, it was announced that Porsche was going to go back to the top class of endurance racing. And then it was announced shortly after that, that the factory uh, partner would be Team Penske. And so I had the opportunity to basically transfer over to that new sports car program. And I've been doing that for the last two years now. And so basically saw the program from before the physical first physical car even existed. And now we just finished up both championships in IMSA and in the WEC. So I actually just got back from Bahrain less than a week ago, which was the last race of the season. So the last two years have honestly felt like it's been five or six years, but it's, it's been honestly the opportunity of a lifetime. Navi for, for those that may not know, let's just jump into the GTP platform and maybe, you know, the differences between the previous generation of car and where sports car is racing is today, where we have worldwide regulations in a sense, um, the cars you work on can now, uh, travel around the world and compete. So maybe, you know, give people a little bit of background on, on the platform, its purposes, and maybe the differences from what we saw before. Yeah, of course. I think the way I like to describe this new you know, recipe book for sports cars is sports car racing has always generally been a meant to be a technology showcase of what the OEMs are truly capable of. Like, you know, in NASCAR and IndyCar and these sort of racing series, they try to put a big focus on the quality of the racing. And sometimes when the technology is ramped up and up and up, the quality of racing kind of goes down because then it becomes you know, just an arms race as far as technology and all these other things. But in sports car racing, that is kind of one of the last bastions of letting the OEMs kind of run free within, you know, practical restrictions. And I think this newest category with GTP and hypercar is uh, the most extreme version of that that we've seen in a while. And the way I describe it is, like, if you look at an Indy car or a NASCAR Cup car or even the old generation of DPI race cars, whatever the driver was doing off of the basic inputs of the car, like the steering, the throttle, the brakes, all the basic stuff, the car was directly following those commands because there's a direct connection between the inputs and what the car was doing. What I like to say is in this modern GTP category, everything that the driver is requesting of the car is exactly that. It's a request. And then the car is basically interpreting that request and doing whatever it thinks is best, which is a really weird way to think about a race car. But uh, as an engineering exercise, it's at the highest level because you basically have to, like a child, you have to train this car of how to behave. And so we hire these you know, very talented race car drivers and they give the car the best possible instruction as far as what they're looking for. But then there's an additional component of the car processing the world and doing kind of its own thing. And so when it works, it's, it works really well. And when it doesn't work, uh, it can be a quite frustrating weekend, not only for the engineers, but also for the drivers. And so the additional component to this is every single racetrack is different. Uh, the racetrack or the race car has to do something different at all of these different racetracks. And so that's made the job of the engineers uh, very, very difficult because it's a constant moving target. And, you know, I don't want to say like it's a bad thing from a from a you know stimulation point of view. It's been 
I've learned so much over the past two years, and so have so many of my colleagues, even colleagues that were involved on, you know, the 919 LMP1 program or the Accurate DPI. Uh, this this new, you know, rule book has has taught us a lot and is continuous continuing to teach us. Yeah, and I know a lot of people. They talk, you know, they they see that there's a spec hybrid system and and a few spec components when it comes to uh, this new platform. But as you kind of talked about, it's way more involved than just putting in pieces, parts and pieces that are already developed. A lot of it is that software. A lot of it is training the car and the driver to um, evolve, you know, and, and work together. It, is there any part of it? Is the LMDH car the same, harder, or different when it comes to the hypercar? You know, obviously, WC has a lot of the hypercar platforms, but that is uh, strictly manufacturer based. Where are the differences? Where is where are the difficulties uh, between the two platforms? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I think there are pros and cons to both approaches. Whether you basically build a car via the hypercar rule set or you build it via the LMDH slash GTP rule set. So, some of the pros with the GTP rule set are obviously cost, right? Where you work with uh, a chassis manufacturer like Delara or Liger, Multimatic. Um, and you know, you can kind of split a lot of the design work and the manufacturing effort, and you have the benefit of not having to put in the research and development, uh, into the battery and the, uh, electric motor, uh, Williams and Bosch take care of that. And that's a, that, those are some very sophisticated components. Um, but the, so that's the benefit. The downside is you have to integrate a spec unit into your own car concept. And this is a very non-trivial thing. I think sometimes people get the impression that you can kind of just slap in a battery and an electric motor on any given powertrain and you can just go off to the races. But it's really not the case. If you look at all of the different uh, GTP cars that raced in the 2023 season, so you have the Cadillac, which has a naturally aspirated V8. It sounds unlike anything else in the paddock. And then you have the Porsche with a road car derived uh, V8 engine, but it has a, and, and so does BMW. BMW has a V8 engine, but that was specifically built for racing in a different series. I think it was, it's an older DTM engine. Um, so both BMW and Porsche have twin turbo V8s, but a very fundamental difference between these two twin turbo V8 engines is, you know, the firing order of the engine, the crankshaft design. And this has some very fundamental consequences for the overall behavior of the powertrain. And then, you know, obviously you have Acura where they have a bespoke uh, spaceship-esque V6 engine that they built just for this thing that's going to go into, or some variation of it is going to go into future Indy cars. And you cannot just, you know, take any given hybrid and um, hybrid system and just slap it onto a given powertrain. It has to be fully integrated, especially at the type of racing that we're doing. And so it's a very difficult thing to basically take a component off the shelf and integrate it with your car and then just expect to immediately win. Uh, because you have to make compromises for the your internal combustion components to be able to work with, um, yeah, the components that you're getting off the shelf. And the thing that I didn't even mention is a big component of the GTP rule set is also the brake by wire system. And so uh, a component of having a hybrid race car is not you don't just have the 
electric motor acting on drive. So when you press the throttle, it also acts under braking. Um, the electric motor spinning backwards, essentially under braking, has uh, a huge consequence for how the car feels dynamically when the car is decelerating. Uh, a conventional car, you can do the entire deceleration demand of the car via just you know the hydraulic pressure going into the calipers and compressing onto the brake rotors. But now you're introducing this electric motor that's also assisting your braking. And so how you blend that with the hydraulic action is a very, very complicated thing. And every single OEM has their own uh, solution for it. And this is honestly something that's been developing throughout the entire course of the season. Like I, I would be I, in, a, in a theoretical world, I would be so curious to take the car that we raced at, at Daytona and then bring the car that we yeah. ended the season at and race right. them against one another. Honestly, like it would look like they were two separate classes and it would be <laughs> the same for every single manufacturer because, you know, I think people think it's a spec series, there's homologation, you know, there's BOP, but every single manufacturer has been pushing race over race, test over test to improve the systems of the car where just because of the hardware is set doesn't mean that the calibration of all of these different systems is set. And the calibration is honestly where you make up huge chunks of time. And so, yeah, I, you know, I, I think I covered the majority of it uh, as far as GTP is concerned. Hypercar, we could talk about that, you know, endlessly where, uh, you know, they can have all wheel drive, which is a fundamentally different thing that you're introducing in. Uh, obviously, you know, there are mechanisms to try and balance the performance of GTP and the hypercars, but it's a very, very difficult thing to do, especially across uh, different racetracks. I am not envious of the governing bodies at all for that sort of task. And um, as I think we're, you know, seeing, um, it's, it's just going to continue to evolve into the future. Yeah, I think one new unique aspect of your career is getting on Port Penske in the very beginning stages of this platform of, you know, starting up, you know, obviously Penske had been in sports car racing before, but kind of starting out new with a new manufacturer, a new group of people. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the difficulties of just starting up in a completely new uh, program along with doing a lot of the initial testing you know, you guys were the first ones out there with your LMDH testing these new spec pieces um, and, and off the heels of the, the pandemic, which obviously introduced a, a whole different number of um, difficulties as well. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, so my first experience with professional motorsport was on the Team Penske NASCAR team. And Brian, as I'm sure you know, like NASCAR teams, especially, you know, the top rung of the category, they are very well oiled machines operationally. Uh, basically, everything has been kind of sorted out and has been for years, and it's all just about executing. And it is a very different thing to join basically an upstart team. Um, I think people from kind of the outside, they see, oh, Porsche is going back into sports car racing. They won Le Mans three years in a row. Oh, Penske is going back into sports car racing. They won two back-to-back -back DPI championships. But what you don't realize is, yes, that is the brand that we're representing. But a lot of the people that won those championships for the DPI program, you know, they are spread across the world essentially now. You know, it's been several years since that program ended. And so now the Penske Sports Car Program, while there is some still some significant personnel from those achievements, a lot of the team is brand new. It's the same thing on the Porsche side. 
uh, a lot of the people that worked on the LMP1 program, it's been, I don't know, six, seven years since that program ended. And so the cast of people that is working uh, on this car is very different than the people that eventually converge to repeatable success on the LMP1 car. And so you have both sides coming together with a lot of new personnel. And even if it was the exact personnel that won the DPI championships and the exact people from the LMP1, it would still be difficult when you come together because with anything, you know, you can't just, uh, you can't always just expect one plus one to immediately equal two, especially when people are involved, you know, there's egos and there's all sorts of things and you have to learn to basically kind of be able to dance together, right? Some people have to make concessions. Some people have to lead sometimes. And with any program like this, there's, there's a certain time period where you have to kind of find your footing. And so just philosophically, this was always going to be difficult. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, the pandemic, the first time we went over to Germany uh, as Penske, um, it was, yeah, like I mean, you know, the pandemic spiked and then it had uh, kind of it eased a little bit and then it would spike. And going to Germany uh, during that time was very difficult. Like the first time we saw a lot of our Porsche colleagues, you know, everyone's wearing a mask. You can't really go do team building exercises because you're still in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, obviously the parts shortages and everything. And so it was a very difficult circumstance in which to start a program like this. But I think, I think honestly, it, it, it sounds weird to say it was for the best, but there were certainly some positives that came from that, especially as far as team morale within the Penske group. Because we went over there, there's a group of, I don't know, 15 of us maybe, and we're in a different country. Uh, we don't necessarily speak German and, you know, you're, you kind of have to fend for yourself in the middle of a pandemic. And so that was a really special experience, I think, for a lot of us as we're trying to kind of find our footing with this new program, new country and all of this. Um, and one additional thing that I think I've learned is, for me especially, I think I took what it was like to be on a fully sorted program for granted. I've now realized that the actual natural state of affairs for most things, whether it's you know businesses or anything, is actually chaos. That is the baseline. And success is actually the result of a lot of people over a long period of time kind of sorting out the, the kinks and smoothing it all out such that it's a very smooth process. When you're involved with something from the very beginning, you have a lot of really awkward, frustrating conversations where people know things have to get done, but then you kind of look around and you realize, oh, there's no one actually assigned to do this. And because everybody thinks someone else was going to take care of it, no one took care of it. And then someone's finally assigned to do it. And then you realize, oh, we don't actually have this equipment to do this because we sold it after our old program was <laughs> over or whatever. And these are not things that you deal with when you're on, you know, even year two, three, four, or whatever of a program. But on the first year, when all of these things come together, it's extremely difficult. Um, and this is all interpersonal stuff that I'm talking about, right? Then you add in the technical behemoth that is this new category of race car. And uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a very special experience to put it lightly. Do you think, do you think um, Porsche's dive into the platform early on, earlier than anybody else um, helped or hurt, hurt you guys or was it a draw? I think, I think it was necessary. Honestly, uh, somebody had to be the first one. And I think Porsche was by far the, you know, organization Porsche Penske, I should say was by far the most, 
uh, it was the organization that was most fitted to do this. Um, honestly, this was one of the most mind-blowing things from when I first uh, went over to the Porsche Research and Development Facility in Vysok. Uh, you know, I, I, by this point, I had been around motorsport for a while. I had kind of seen what the infrastructure looks like of a top-level organization. And when I went first got to Vysok, my jaw dropped with basically the infrastructure and the culture of motorsport that existed over there. Uh, this is maybe a side note, but something that I really appreciated is, as I think anyone who's worked with an OEM partner before is, you know, racing is largely a marketing exercise. Uh, you, you know, you win on Sunday to be able to sell on Monday. And so you see a lot of claims of, you know, uh, this and this race car was uh, built by the people that build our road cars also. And so if you, you know, if this car wins on a Sunday, that's directly uh, linked to the car that races or that you can buy on Monday. And you kind of roll your eyes when you're an inside industry insider, because you know, it's not really true. It's marketing speak. But when I got to Vysak, I realized, oh, for Porsche, it is true. And it has to be this way because of the amount of pride that they take in their motorsport legacy. Um, like, I don't think most people know this, but like the Porsche GT class of cars, so the GT2, GT3, um, uh, all of these things, those those cars are engineered by the same people that work on the motorsport program. A lot of my colleagues from the Porsche side, um, during the week, they have projects. Oh, like they're developing the 2027 GT3 engine or, uh, you know, they were developing this and that for road car use. Um and so I thought that was a really special thing uh, to be involved in. Um, and so to get back to your question, um, I think somebody had to be the first to dive into it. And Porsche, I, Porsche Penske, I think, was by far the organization that was best suited to it. Don't get me wrong. It was extremely difficult for everyone involved. You know, there's as with any engineering project that has such complex integration like this, um, things were things that are not going to go smoothly from the beginning you know we had a lot of tests where we wanted to test you know x number of hours and we maybe did 10 percent of that and it's it's very difficult when you fly across an ocean to expect to be this productive and you're not um but i think it was a good it was an important thing for the entire category that we undertook this challenge and we got a lot of things sorted out by the time other oems and other race teams started this um and, you know, it's worked It's worked both ways. As soon as, you know, the Acura and the Cadillac and the BMW started testing, I think, you know, a, what do they say? A rising tide lifts all ships. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was kind of an exchange from all from all parties involved to basically make this a sort of sustainable platform. Um, but, yeah, it was it was very difficult at the beginning. I, I think what uh, one of the advantages of having you on Navi is, is, you know, our audience more of a NASCAR base. They only see some of the Penske cars on track at one time. So they don't realize that over, you know, the span of the globe, right. There's multiple races going on at once. Can you talk about the difficulties from a logistical standpoint of having uh, a team run, you know, two world championships? Yeah, I mean, it's the logistics. Honestly, I don't even know if I entirely appreciate and understand it. Um, like, I guess I could split it up into uh, like a, a personnel standpoint, and then I can split it up into the physical logistics of it. The physical logistics of it, you know, in, in IMSA, it's, it's not easy, but it's a little bit more straightforward because it's a national championship. You go from race to race. 
Um, this year especially was very difficult because of all the testing. So generally in sports car racing, the first year of a certain rule set, the testing is virtually unlimited just because all the teams needed to basically iron everything out and not be, not be finding out fundamental things during a race weekend. Um, but from, you know, like a hauler perspective, you just take a race car from track to track to track, uh, where it gets really tricky is when you have international races where you go from racing in Sebring to racing in Portimao to testing at Spa to, you know, eventually going to Japan to the Middle East. Uh, it is so interesting to see how f ahead of time things have to be planned uh, just to just to make it, you know, like the, like seeing the logistics of the sea freight that we have to do between one WEC race to another. It's, it's honestly crazy. And when, when we can't plan things very well, like I wish I could, I had taken pictures of some of the suitcases that we've taken from race to race. Like there are so many instances where people can only bring one, you know, one shirt, one pair of pants and everything else is full of race car parts because, you know, something came out of the oven super late or, uh, there was a last minute revision to some component. Uh, and I mean, we've been at this for two years and there's, this is still constantly going on. And so that's been, that's been yeah, a, a pretty big challenge for a lot of the people involved. The second part of it, as I mentioned, is the personnel where um, I think one of the benefits of having this sort of international rule set is you don't have to basically have two separate cars that are racing in these two different championships. And you don't need to have engineers, uh, you know, that are specifically attuned to the niches of a, spe a specific championship to be able to work in it. Like in my example, I did the full IMSA championship this year. And then I went over to Lama, which was right after Laguna and before Watkins Glen. And I helped to run the 75 car in the World Endurance Championship for Lama. And yeah, it, when Lamont was over, immediately came back, did Watkins Glen, did, immediately did Mossport. And then um, after Road America, I went to Fuji, supported the Fuji race, immediately came back, did Indianapolis, the race, and then uh, did Road Atlanta. And then I went to Bahrain. And as I said, I just got back from Bahrain less than a week ago. And so it's been a really special experience because everything that we learned from the IMSA program, we directly apply to our cars racing in the WEC championship and vice versa. And I think, especially as a Porsche Penske organization, we have a, because it's all run under one banner, I think there's been a lot of uh, growth uh, within our team just because of the amount of data that we're generating. I think it's not a surprise to anyone where if you look at how we started the season in both championships and how we ended as far as how competitive we were, um, you know, it was a steady increase in terms of reliability and in terms of performance. And I don't think that's an accident. Uh, don't get me wrong. It was extremely difficult for all parties involved where you have basically unlimited testing uh, in IMSA, you have unlimited testing in WEC, and then you have people that are basically in, in a part of all of it. It's very difficult, but that's kind of how it goes with um, a first year racing series like this. Um, you know, I, I think anyone who wants to consider joining something like this in the future, like for sure, it's going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity, but I think you have to be very aware of what sort of sacrifice it's going to take from your personal life um, in that you're not going to really have a personal life for the first year or two. And that's just honestly, that's the that's what it takes 
to be competitive at this level. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the the differences between the WEC and the IMSA car. Are they identical exactly? Are there any different bits, pieces, different uh, parameters when it comes to um, you know creating a car for both championships? So they are not identical, but I think uh, I, I could say they are virtually identical. In terms of all practical stuff, they are, ba- they are basically identical. And, I, you know, sports car racing has never had this sort of thing before. I mean, maybe you could look at GT3 cars where, you know, a GT3 car can race in a lot of different championships across the world. But in terms of like top level prototypes, this is um, this is a, a a very new thing to have happen. Where the differences do arise, um, and when I say they're practically identical, I mean I think I mean that from like the point of view of like the average fan. From the point of view of, of one of the engineers involved, there are, there are actually some meaningful differences that really matter to how we approach uh, a given race in a certain championship. The biggest uh, result of the differences, I think, comes from the way you homologate the car. Uh, and homologate basically means how you submit a car to finalize it for racing. So in IMSA, to homologate the car um, from an aerodynamic point of view, you have to go to the windshear, wind tunnel, and Concorde, and you have to basically assess the car over a given number of uh, what we call attitudes to make sure that the car fits within the prescribed aero envelope. Like the car shouldn't make too much drag and it shouldn't make too little drag. Same thing with downforce. Um, and it's actually a fairly sophisticated procedure that between IMSA, the FIA, and the ACO that they've established to basically make sure that one OEM can't spend, you know, 10 times the budget as far as aerodynamics compared to somebody else. Um, and so, yeah, as I said, in IMSA, you homologate the car in wind shear. And for the World Endurance Championship, you basically have to homologate the car at the Sauber F1 wind tunnel. And... You know, I can speak to this due to my background as an aerodynamicist, but um, there are a lot of very subtle differences between the geometry of wind tunnels that can that can cause taking the exact same car to two different wind tunnels to basically create uh, meaningfully different results. And so when we did take the exact same car to the different wind tunnels, you do see some differences that you kind of have to adapt to to get the car to fit within the prescribed window. And so we did have to make adjustments. But, um, you know, I think the average fan would be hard pressed to identify all the little trinkets that we had to add on to a car in a particular championship. Um, And there's a lot of other subtle differences that arise from just the way that the championships like to run things. Like a lot of the electronics within the cabin, um, you know, IMSA requires things that are different than the WEC. And so to to distill it all down, I think if you're trying to take an IMSA race car and you want to turn it around to immediately go racing in the WEC and pass scrutineering, it's going to take about a week of maybe four or five mechanics working full time to be able to turn a car around for that. And so this is, it's, that is a lot of work and it's not easy, but it certainly beats having to build a bespoke race car for each championship. Uh, Let's jump back real quick to the homologation process. And I know you've been a, a part of the cup series for a good number of years as an aerodynamicist. Are there any, this is a very general question, but are there any, differences that stand out between NASCAR's cup parity testing and the uh, sports car IMSA WEC homologation process? 
I think from an aerodynamic point of view, it's actually quite similar. So the way that the parity testing is done in NASCAR, whenever an OEM wants to submit a new body, it's a similar sort of process where you're prescribed basically a narrow window in which the car should meet its downforce targets and its drag targets. And um, it's a similar thing for IMSA. I think the biggest thing that I've been exposed to is uh, because of the amount of resource involved in NASCAR, even during the parity test, you're, tr you're trying to optimize for the results of the parity test via right. a bunch of different things, yeah. you know, yeah. versus in versus in sports car racing. I don't think people understand that the amount of resource that an average sports car team has is much less than a NASCAR team. And so you kind of don't really have the time or the resources to endlessly optimize even the parity test. Um, it's difficult enough to just coordinate the logistics of parts coming to and from Germany and going to Switzerland for Sauber and all of this stuff where you're just relieved once you pass the, the test and you just kind of count on the rest of the results just being, you know, on track. Um, and so I think, yeah, from an aerodynamic point of view, it's, it's similar, but the details just kind of lie in to the degree which NASCAR teams constantly tinker to get every little bit of advantage uh, compared to everybody else. Yeah. I, I had a buddy and, um, he he went from Stuart Haas over to the Acura uh, GTP platform early on the stages of that organization as well. And I remember when he left Stuart Haas and he went over there, he sent me a text and he's like, "Dude, I I asked him for for five runs CFD runs a week and their jaw hit the floor." And you know we were so used to in the Cup Series, especially when there were you know we were unrestricted. I mean, you know as well as I do how many CFD runs a team or a manufacturer would run. Uh, I remember hearing stories that just between Penske and Stuart Haas, 50% of the CFD hours worldwide for Ford manufacturing were done in the NASCAR side. So um, to your point, I mean, the amount of resources that, that the Cup Series was was using and, and running through and the money was really mind-blowing for, um, for even us within the industry. Right. And I think the last thing that I would add to this conversation about homologation and aerodynamics is in some ways the NASCAR, uh, what you're optimizing for in NASCAR is it's easier and it's also more complicated than what you're doing in sports car, where in NASCAR, because you're going so fast, you know, at, at average speeds of, you know, 200 miles an hour at certain intermediates and whatnot, uh, the importance of aerodynamics relative to all other parameters is so much higher that you're that's all you're shooting for and in sports car racing it's you know the tracks are much more varied versus the variance across different nascar tracks and what the car is doing on track is also much more variable in terms of its speed envelope that it will run at in terms of you know the um, a lot of other little details and so yeah, I think aerodynamics, it's, I mean, it's obviously a huge, um, it's a huge thing you have to get right, especially when a car is competing at Daytona and Le Mans. But yeah, man, I, NASCAR is just a, such a different ball game <laughs> as far as how important aerodynamics is and what you will sacrifice to optimize that. Uh, I lived it for four and a half years and I was, I was so 
<laughs> it always made me laugh that as an aerodynamicist, I basically had a blank sheet to redesign any component of the car that I wanted, as long as I could say it had an aerodynamic game. Like <laughs> the vehicle dynamics group would endlessly optimize, you know, the suspension geometry for camber gain and all of these other things. And then an aerodynamist could, aerodynamicist could just come through and say, well, I want this tube to be right here. And the aerodynamicist always won that argument. Um, it's not really that way in a lot of other racing series, but um, yeah, it's just it's it's fun to remember those those days. So I mean, I, I know you haven't been a part of or been involved indirectly with the you know the next gen platform, Gen Seven platform in the NASCAR. Um, does anything from the outside? You know, I know again we we know how busy you've been traveling and and working on this uh, new Porsche program. Is there anything from the outside in that you see that either uh, sparks interest as far as, wow, that's cool, that's working good, or, or you know, the, the opposite of that, uh, wow, that just doesn't look like a good idea? Um, you know, what, do you, what are you thinking about this new platform, a new age of NASCAR? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing for me is, you know, I, I still spend a lot of my time within the Penske facility. Um, and so I do walk through the NASCAR shop and it's, it's honestly mind blowing to me that when I started in 2017, the NASCAR shop was always just bustling with activity. Um, the amount of cars that we were producing, the amount of people that we had, uh, employed to find performance and whatnot. Like, I think when I started the aerodynamics team was like 15 to 20 people. The design group was like 15 to 20 people. The vehicle dynamics group was like five to 10 people. Uh, and now when I walk through it, uh, you know, I, I can count on one hand how many aerodynamicists there are. I can count on one hand how many designers there are. And the shop just seems dead by comparison. And, you know, it's a, it's a little bit sad compared to compared to what it was. The thing is, I totally understand why NASCAR had to do what they did because the amount of resource that we devoted to just finding tiny tiny gains was so unsustainable i'm not even sure how we were able to do it in the first place um but you know i i think i think the racing has been good but i think a major difference between what i'm involved in and what nascar is involved in is you know nascar the bulk of the car is made by delara it's delivered to the teams and the teams can optimize within a very small window what they need to but Ultimately, it's it's a it's a very spec series, and when you look at sports car racing, you could say, well, it's a BOP series, you know. But if you look at what IMSA has actually done with the BOP over the last year, like they've let basically every team run free, uh, they have not overly BOP'd the most successful teams to bring them in line with the slowest teams. They've kind of let us all have at it. And sure, we might have physically locked in our designs. Uh, via the homologation process. But what we've been able to do with the software has been simply incredible uh, in terms of differentiating our car from the other manufacturers. And I think this is not only good for the engineers involved in the, in the sport, but it's also been a really good thing for the manufacturers themselves, where even if you look at the products that they're selling on the street, they're increasingly being dominated by the software component. And I think what, from what I've seen within Porsche, they have learned a lot of lessons on how you uh, develop and deploy you know, performance related software to uh, the race cars and, you know, what sort of philosophies work and um, yeah, all of this other stuff. And so, yeah, you know, kind of a long winded answer, but basically I'm just saying that 
it's been really exciting as an engineer to be involved in sports car racing, not just for my own sake, but for, you know, moving, uh, quote unquote, the world forward. And I think if I worked in NASCAR these days, I don't think it would be as satisfying just because a lot of the freedom that we used to have is just simply not there anymore. And, um, yeah, you, you start to have a difficult conversation with how much, how much, is letting you know the manufacturers and the race teams run free and having some creative freedom worth relative to the racing product? Honestly, I can't answer that question. I just know it makes me a little sad that uh, yeah, it's not what it used to be. Well, let me ask you this: uh, you know, tying it back into the NASCAR world a little bit, and uh, if you were kept up with uh, social media, you know that uh, NASCAR social media this week went a buzz when they showed a picture uh, when it comes to some of the hybrids, uh, some of the different testing they're going to do. So the question for you would be, you know, the possible introduction of hybrids in NASCAR. Is it possible? And uh, how would that work exactly? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think it's totally possible. And I think, um, you know, anytime there's a change in motorsport, I think the fans initially react very negatively, and then they kind of come around. And I think it's going to be a similar thing with the hybrid systems when they are introduced. I think from a technical point of view, the hybrid allows you to do some very, very cool things uh, that some street cars are already doing. Like if you look at um, like our IMSA cars, you know, coming mm-hmm. down pit lane, we can put the car in fully electric mode. It's dead silent. Uh, and then when we take off from a pit stop, our car is dead silent. And then we can turn on the combustion mm-hmm. engine halfway down pit lane. And it makes this epic sound and it looks really cool. But, it, it you know, it, it also makes sense where if we don't need the combustion engine on at certain time periods, we shouldn't have it on. Um, yeah. And so I think from sending the like sustainability message, uh, I think it's a positive. But also from a performance point of view, uh, like a car that is a hybrid or uh, is an electric uh, car compared to just a conventional internal combustion engine car, if all of them are engineered to their, um, you know, natural extremity or whatever, like if you do the best possible job with all of them, the hybrid or electric race car is simply more capable than a car that is simply just an internal combustion engine car. And so I think for fans that are, you know, looking at motorsport as the pinnacle of performance, they should be embracing the hybrid system. Um, And I think the last component of it too, is like, it just, it introduces a very interesting change into the sport uh, as far as it's another knob that the engineers have to be able to tune the Mm -hmm. race, you know, to keep up with the balance of the racetrack or tune the car for the preferred balance of the driver. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I, from what I can, from what I've seen on the sports car team, the fact that we have a hybrid car allows us to optimize and tune the car just with the software as much, if not more, than we can do with the mechanical setup. And I think it's a difficult thing for some people to kind of accept at the beginning, but I know eventually uh, we're going to look back at the fact that yeah. we didn't, you know, embrace this technology as fast as possible, and we're like, oh, what were we thinking? I'm convinced of it. I'm curious too, because NASCAR obviously owns IMSA. So there's different mechanics and different things that they can do from there. Obviously NASCAR went to a next gen vehicle. So I assume just in my basic brain that they're, they should be able to take what they're learning there and, and somewhat apply it to NASCAR when they're doing some different testing. I know, you know, hydrogen engines been talked about as well, just different elements. And am I right in that or my way off? 
No, I think you're totally right. I think the Gen 7 car was basically largely designed with the eventual goal of introducing a hybrid component to this. Um, I think it's simply the way NASCAR has to go, because as we talked about earlier, motorsport at the end of the day is largely a marketing exercise. And you simply cannot, you know, you can't not embrace what all of the road cars are going towards. And so I think we will... Uh, I think NASCAR will see a lot of what's going on in IMSA and try to basically introduce that into yeah. the sport, especially as you see, basically all of the major forms of racing are going to hybrid. IndyCar next year is going to hybrid. F1 has been hybrid okay. for the last decade. Um, and so I think it's an eventuality. But the thing I would add is it has to be done right. Uh, when you introduce hybrid systems into cars, it's a, it's, it, it has the potential to be a very dangerous thing. Um, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of training and a lot of processes need to be introduced to make it as safe as possible for everybody. Um, I think the thing that's very difficult for a lot of people to understand is with a purely mechanical race car, the danger can be somewhat obvious, right? Like maybe don't stick mm. your arm in this where there's a moving belt, or maybe don't do this. Maybe don't stand in front of the car when it's about to leave. It's quite obvious with with electric cars and hybrid cars, the danger is invisible. And that's that's a very scary thing if the right processes are not adhered to. Um, you know, you have sometimes 800 volts running through every single component of this car. And if you touch it, um, you know, that's that, that, there's no real way to survive that. I don't want to basically make this, uh, you know, be fear mongering. Hybrid systems, right. when done, when implemented correctly, are extremely safe. But mm -hmm. that's only when people adhere to the right processes. And um, I think NASCAR probably has a little bit of thinking to do before they introduce it properly. Like some of the shunts that we see in NASCAR of, are of epic proportion. You know, these cars get absolutely wadded up. And anytime we yeah. have an incident on track, our first concern is always, is the car safe for the marshals to touch? Is the car safe for the driver? And some of the shunts that we have in sports car racing are not anywhere with anywhere close to what we see in NASCAR. And so um, I think that's a big component that's maybe delaying the implementation of this sort of thing, um, just because it has to be done right. Well, I'm I'm enjoying this conversation. I know everybody listening probably is as well because you are you are a wealth of knowledge, and it's really cool to hear some of the differences between you know both series. We we touched on the engine component. Now I got a question for you about the wing. So we'll go to the rear of the car. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was talking about NASCAR social media, they posted a picture. It looked like from the R and D center. Uh, allegedly, that's what it was leaked from, and it's basically just a gen 7 if you haven't seen it, it's just a gen 7 with a, a wing on the back a, an extended uh wing um you know talk about that wing for for example i i guess it opens up different possibilities uh and options for nascar and the teams can you touch on any of that of what that would mean and how that would look at all yeah yeah so uh, you know the 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 discussion of wings in nascar i think is always a little bit contentious i think uh the car of it tomorrow is. Was, was a little bit before my time but i've you know i've seen a lot of the discussions that people have had of you know why what were they even thinking put these putting these wings on these cars it would cause it was causing them to flip end over end and all of this yeah. other stuff you know from an is from that an, true is that true though that it was I, actually doing that or is that just what we thought you know uh, the thing is, I 
I only tried to give an opinion on things that I'm absolutely certain about, like given okay. that I didn't actually work on the car of tomorrow sure. and I, I, you know, I haven't seen all the wind tunnel data and stuff. I, I, I don't want to be super confident about giving yeah. uh, an answer on that, but my suspicion is that no, uh, okay. from my That's point of view, a spoiler and a wing um, are basically two ways of achieving the same end, which is, you know, mm -hmm. making a certain amount of performance uh, in terms of, you know, downforce to drag ratio and all of this stuff. Like it's just basically two different paintbrushes you have to achieve the same end. And it's the end uh, which determines, you know, a car susceptibility to flipping end over end of or all this other stuff. And so, uh, you know, you can make a car that has a spoiler that will immediately start flying off the ground. And you can make a car with a wing that will never um lift off the ground. It's all about the little details. And so I think some of the discussions surrounding that, again, I don't want to put too much of a, you know, concrete emphasis on this because, sure. you know, I wasn't involved in all that stuff. And my suspicion is it's not the case. Um, as far as, you know, the specific discussion of wings and NASCAR, mm -hmm. it's a really interesting thing where I, you know, I think Brian can speak to this as well, but when NASCAR introduced this um, NA18D package a couple of years ago, where every single race was basically, you know, pack racing, all the teams started to basically, um, uh, what you were, how much you were trimming out the car was a much bigger discussion than it had in, been in the past. Where in the past, for most intermediate tracks, you always just sold out for downforce. Drag, it didn't matter as long as you made even a tiny amount of downforce. When they introduced this NA18D package, the teams basically had to decide beforehand, okay, are we going to optimize for downforce? So basically performance after the tires have worn off and you're no longer full throttle, or are you going to optimize for drag? Where basically if there's a restart with five laps to go and everybody's on fresh tires, you're just going to pull away from everybody because you're so much faster in a straight line. And it was always really funny to see teams optimizing for one or the other because you weren't really supposed to be doing that. You know, you weren't really supposed to be, you know, moving the roof up or down or side to side. You weren't really supposed to be playing with the spoiler and the deck lids and all this stuff, but the teams were doing so. And I think it kind of made a disservice to the fans because we were putting a lot of effort and analysis into just trying to distinguish our cars from our competitors in a way that we thought was favorable. Yeah. Nobody could see a lot of the little tricks that we were implementing to achieve, you know, a certain sort of goal. The, the cars on track all looked the same, even though we put so many hours, if not hundreds of hours into thought into it. And I think this is something that F1 really gets right, where F1, it's not only about the racing, but there's also a culture of technology around this, the sport. So when a team introduces a new component, it's very visible. And there's a discussion amongst the fans or the commentators about, you know, why are they doing this and this? Or what, like, you know, what could they possibly be trying to do? And so I think if you sort of try to introduce uh, like wings into NASCAR or whatever, I think it could be a really good opportunity for the sport to kind of embrace what the teams are doing as far as differentiating their cars, uh, instead of basically trying to pass them off as, you know, they're all the exact same and it's just the driver that makes the difference. I think everyone knows that's not the case. There's a reason why the Penske's and the Gibbs cars and the Hendrick cars of the world are always, you know, top 10. And so I think kind of giving some of that information back to the fans would be well suited. Um, so just, you know, as a, as a short uh, answer to what you were saying, yeah, for sure, you can have wings in NASCAR and probably even improve the racing product. 
Um, it just has to kind of fit in to the goals of the OEMs as far, as far as what they're trying to do from a marketing point of view. And I think that's mostly been the reason why we haven't seen that. That and that, you know, the car of tomorrow put such a bad taste in fans' mouths that even a discussion of wings is like, you know, heresy. Yeah, and especially right now with, um, you know, obviously wouldn't make as much of an impact at the short tracks, but even at the 550 package, I think it would give, or the, I'm sorry, the, we were talking about in, uh, the NA18 uh, or 19 uh, package, uh, that was the 550 package. But um, when we talk about the intermediate package with this this Gen 7 car, I think a wing would really bring in a lot of options for teams to trim out or 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 add more downforce or for even for nascar maybe to implement different uh downforce levels per track a lot simpler than otherwise they'd be able to yeah absolutely Uh, you know as we discussed we were doing it anyway we were already trimming out our cars but we were having to do it in a way where nobody got to see and it was it was costing us so much resource to be able to differentiate our cars and so I i think if the teams had a lever that they could move and it was visible to the fans, I think the overall product would just be better. Um, You know, from a a personal point of view, the reason I got into engineering was because I grew up watching, you know, Formula One. And not only did I uh, appreciate the on-track action between all the different drivers and stuff, but it was such a technical sport that I, I was super interested in. I was like, oh, look, Ferrari showed up with this wing that looks totally different than everybody else. What are they trying to do? And then you try to understand what they're trying to do from an engineering point of view. And so, um, you know, ultimately racing or motorsport is about, um, you know, entertainment. But I think it can always be a little bit more than that, where I think people can look at motorsport as basically uh, what happens when you give a group of uh, mechanics and technicians uh, a goal and you tell them to hit it as hard as they can or as best as they can? And um, yeah, it's just been something that's kind of been missing in NASCAR. You know, just, that's just my personal opinion where so much of the cool stuff that we've done has been kind of invisible to most people. Well, before we let you go, um, I'm going to do a little little segment here where I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions. Derek, you can jump in. Um, you know, obviously very rarely do we get to talk to somebody that's traveled as much as you been around as much as you, or, or have uh, been as deeply involved with two different unique series as much as you. So, um, but first of all, what's your favorite track you've been to this year? My favorite track I've been to, honestly, it's road Atlanta. Road Atlanta (laughs) is such a cool track. That Um, is my favorite track. Yeah, from all the like elevation change and everything and some of the constraints that it puts on the engineers as far as uh, what you can do with setup. I would say a close second, if not equal, is Spa. I think a lot of people, you know, everyone's seen a Formula One race at one point in their life. Everyone knows about Eau Rouge, but actually being there and walking the track, (laughs) there's so many things you see that you will never notice on television. Spa is an absolutely preposterous racetrack that I can't believe somebody built. It's literally (laughs) carved into the side of a mountain. And yeah, I'm sure if it didn't exist, if you propose building it today, people would laugh at you. Like, why would we do that? And so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a really cool track and, um, yeah, spa and road Atlanta. So next, obviously we'll do the opposite. Least favorite track. Least favorite track. Um, I think it would have to be Bahrain, honestly, not because yes, not because 
there's anything wrong with the track, but because of how difficult it is. Oh. Bahrain is notorious for, because of its surface, it absolutely shreds tires. And so you have one lap to put in your fast lap, and then every single, the rest of your lap, the car feels like crap because your tires are just falling off. And so even if you're the fastest car on track, the drivers are complaining and they're complaining that the car feels terrible. And as an engineer, it's a really difficult thing to say. I understand the car might feel terrible, but it feels even worse for everybody else. And um, yeah, some of the, <laughs> when you have a track that's just inherently that difficult, I think there's a lot of negativity that surrounds the race weekend. Even if you know, you're really successful and you're really fast, I, th I think it just takes a toll on the drivers, the mechanics, and then the engineers. And so from a personal point of view, man, Bahrain is really, really tough for everybody. So how did you guys do at Bahrain, out of curiosity? We... Um, I would say we were competitive, you know, we were competitive. Okay. Uh, we, we, we had nothing for the Toyotas, you know, the Toyota has had a nonstop presence at the top level of prototype racing for yeah. over a decade now, you know, there's a lot of little things you learn when you go to the same racetrack with the same type of car over and over and over. So we clearly didn't have anything for the Toyotas. Uh, the Ferraris showed a decent amount of pace in the race. And then one of the Porsche customer teams, Joda, actually had a lot of pace as well. Um, and so I think yeah. our best placed, our best finishing car was P5, I believe. Okay. And, you know, it's... it's, it's well, That's why I asked. That's yeah, why I was asking. Because I was like, if you guys finished on the podium or won... Maybe would that answer have been a little bit different? Honestly, chance? honestly, I wouldn't say so because okay. Indianapolis this year in IMSA was yeah. kind of the same way where everybody in the GTP category, I mean, everybody yeah. in every category might have been struggling a lot, but I know in the GTP category, everyone was struggling, but Porsche Penske, we, you know, basically dominated every single uh, practice session. We were one, two in qualifying and we were one, two in the race, but after the event was okay. over like it, the, the this residual stress was still there right because the entire yeah. race weekend you're you're thinking we're one two but what do other people know that we don't know because we're not happy with one two right now because right. There's, there's so much negativity right. and so i think this is a thing that people don't often get to see like the amount of behind the scenes stress that just being at a difficult racetrack can have on the entire team that's what needs to be documented more. And I know uh, Netflix has done a little bit of that. That's why, you know, I love doing this show so much because we try to pull so many different people to kind of give that behind the scenes a little bit more. Uh, and, and so you touched on it there about like that. Those elements need to be seen for the casual and the hardcore fans of whatever motorsports that they follow the most uh, to see. Uh, what about city? Favorite city? Favorite city. Um, yeah. You know, I think this this answer might be kind of cheating because we didn't okay. race in Tokyo. We raced in Fuji. But okay. everybody that goes to Fuji, you basically, you know, you land in Tokyo and then you take, you know, a two hour bus ride to Fuji. But okay, Tokyo. Why is that? Why Tokyo? Uh, why is it my favorite? Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's honestly, I think for somebody who's grown up in America, you kind of get used to the, you know, the modern world of being a certain way. Mm -hmm. When you go to Europe, you know, people speak a little bit of a different language. Some of the buildings look a little bit different, but it's by and large the same. You go to Tokyo and yeah. 
it is like being in a different world entirely and i think the, right. the nice thing is it's still really nice it's extremely safe you know you have all the amenities of the modern world but everything is just done differently and in my opinion there are certain things that are done a lot better and so i think it's a it's a funny thing as an adult to basically be immersed into a society that's so different from where you have been and it challenges a lot of things that you think you know about the way you know life has to be and a lot of this other stuff and so mm -hmm. i was lucky to be able to spend um, a couple of days in tokyo ahead of the fuji race um and yeah, I loved every little bit of it. Ever since I've come back, I keep telling people, I don't care where you want to go, go to Japan first and foremost, especially Tokyo. Yeah. That's what I heard about the modernization and everything, just kind of those advancements uh, there. How about least favorite city? Uh, do you have a, a, a location that maybe is uh, down at the end of the totem pole there? It is. I think for everybody who works in motorsport, it's Sebring. Whatever. I knew it was coming. Whatever. <laughs> Yeah, Sebring, you know, it's an iconic racetrack and uh, yeah, but it's 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 rough. I think maybe I'm a little bit biased just because when you're developing a race car for the first time, Sebring is the most torturous place you can take a race car. And so the amount of oh. the amount of time I've spent in Sebring over the last two years, I mean, it's got to be over 50 days over just the last two years alone. And so I mean, there's so um, much to do. I don't know about that, Brian. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so Sebring is the, the least. Um, you know, you were talking a lot about hybrids, and, you know, you advocate those, obviously. So I got to ask from a personal car standpoint, do you own a Prius? I do, I do not own a Prius. I actually okay. own a 2007 Honda Accord V6. The V6 is important okay. because it's, it's okay. a muscle car. And then I also yep. own, and maybe this is just my personal bias, I own a Porsche 911 Carrera. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, I was going to say you have I, to have a Porsche. I have to. Good. I mean, I might sound I was... like a shill, but, you know, anyone who works no. in motorsport, you know, you, you hear all these stories, as I said, of like everyone says, you know, the race cars, they breed our road cars or whatever. And you always roll your mm -hmm. eyes. And then I have spent so much time at the Porsche facility over there that I've realized it to be true. And when I saw I, like the more days went by, I was like, man, I need this lineage in my garage. Like this is incredible. Mm -hmm. And yeah, no regrets. It's, it's an incredible yeah. car. Uh, to the, to that point, good. I only have a couple more months before I can, uh, show biases or, or unbiases, <laughs> um, you know, but to your point, maybe like, Porsche is arguably one of the most rooted motorsports manufacturers in the world. Um, I mean, you could argue Toyota, you could argue a couple others maybe, but when it comes to worldwide motorsports, um, you know, there are a lot of frauds out there, but, but Porsche really is not, they, they mean what they do. They, you know, they do what they say. And their cars, again, as you said, are come directly from uh, the passion and the blood work through their motorsports programs. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's all the little details that I've seen in my time at the facility in Vysok. Like I remember I was getting a tour of basically the um, engine assembly area where they assemble a lot of the engines for the cup programs and just a lot of the motorsport stuff in general. And on the wall was this absolutely giant printout of a speed trace from Lama from the 70s and i mean it, it, you know it wasn't just something that was put there for like decoration it was kind of put there to constantly remind everybody like what is the ultimate goal and for a company like porsche it, the 
conversation is dominated 80% of the time by Lama, Lama, Lama. And so it's no surprise that the company has had success there. And yeah, I mean, as a sports car manufacturer, you know, you have to prove your worth in motorsport if you want people to buy your stuff. And uh, as someone who's worked in motorsport and as someone who's worked for Porsche Penske, there was really only one decision for what sort of fun car to have. Well, I tell you what, this has been uh, a lot of fun and I appreciate all the information that you shared. Um, very knowledgeable. And, and again, it made me smarter uh, in, in many aspects. So Navi, can't thank you enough for uh, coming on, joining Brian and I and sitting through the interview or the conversation here. And uh, hopefully here in the near future, you'll uh, join us again when, you know, more relevant news comes up and we have somebody now to go to. So really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely, guys. And thanks for having me on. Um, you know, as, as you guys know, as people who work in motorsport, I think the funnest part about motorsport is all the little details that go into things that people don't necessarily get to see. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a pressure cooker of, of an environment. And with anything that has pressure, it accelerates a lot of things. And so, yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity to learn a lot over the last two years. A lot of good stuff, a lot of bad stuff, but ultimately mm -hmm. I wouldn't change a thing. And so, yeah, it's just been fun talking about it with you guys. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Navi. Really do, really do appreciate it.